Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is Laura Eve Engel, 
Uh, she's a recipient of the fellowship from the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing, and the Helene um, Worlister Foundation. Her work has appeared in The Owl, Best American Poetry, Boston Review, Crazy Horse, Colorado Review, Pen America, Tin House, and elsewhere. She has a new book out called Things That Go. Welcome, Laura. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to have a conversation about your book and about your journey, your creative journey uh, in life. Uh, so why don't we start with your creative journey and tell us where you were born and where you grew up. Yeah. Where I was born? I, well, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, um, but I didn't live there for very much longer after that. Um, my family moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, right before I would ha- I would start preschool. So I did, I, I, you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, did all my schooling there. I went to college there. I, I spent many, many years in that town in central Virginia. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up. I know you have some uh, thoughts on kind of your identity and, and, and growing up in, in Charlottesville, Virginia. How, tell us a little bit about kind of the atmosphere or how it was like. Yeah, sure. So you had, because we have this background context of you had asked me kind of like what what shaped me most about growing up. And that I think one thing that's emerging for me as I, you know, continue on through my adulthood um, that was important growing up in ways that I didn't even realize is that I was was and still am Jewish and I come from a Jewish family. And um, that was a huge part of my upbringing and a huge part of my uh, experience in Central Virginia. I think like very, very early on, um, I was made to feel pretty unusual um, in the community that I was living in um, and didn't really have any sense of why and sort of came into that sense as I came into a sense of, you know, why people do what they do and who I am and how other people behave. But um, really like the the practical impact that it had on my life is that I was, you know, going to religious school and Hebrew school a few times a week outside of, um, outside of regular school. And I had this small community of people who were, you know, also doing that, that were outside of my school and the way that the Charlottesville worked, there's this, there's one synagogue in Charlottesville that services, um, Elmaro County, which is where I grew up. And then, uh, a couple of other surrounding counties. So it was this, and I didn't even realize at the time, it was like there were people who were driving a couple of hours to go to synagogue. Everyone that I went to class with, it was a tiny group, it was like 10 of us, um, it was like the Jews in this part of Virginia, you know? Um, whereas like in New York, like uh, then I got up to New York and, and started meeting other Jewish people. And, and I thought like, oh, I'm going to have something in common with every one of these people. And that is so not the case. But for me, it was like, whoa, you're Jewish too? Cool. That is so unusual for me to meet other Jew- Jewish people. Yeah, um, I think that growing up, we always have that struggle with uh, the insider outsider and, you know, kind of feeling like, you know, marginalized or feeling outsider. I knew I grew up in Staten Island, which, uh, you know, being an American, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of alienating, especially in that um, time period, you know, in the 80s and 90s and such. So, you know, it, we always kind of struggle with that, I think. You know, mm-hmm. do you feel like that? Or do you feel like kind of struggling with outside? Or do you still, do you feel like now you found your community? Or, like, how has that evol- evolution happened? Or, like, a little bit more on that, like, kind of how growing up and coming into your, yourself. And when did you come to New York? Or I moved here six years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I had lived in, before that, I, I went to grad school in Houston, Texas, 
um, which is the first place I'd lived outside of Charlottesville, really. Uh-huh. Um, and then I uh, moved to Wisconsin for a fellowship. So I'd, I'd lived in a couple of different other parts of the country before yeah. moving to New York. But my grandparents grew up in New York, and it, you know, none of my family is from Virginia originally, but I do have family originally from New York. So when I came here, I was like, this feels, this, this could be my home. Um, but yeah, it's, it did feel different. I mean, like I, I didn't realize that I felt different in Virginia really until I came up here and then went and then went back and was, and was like, Oh, some things make more sense to me now. Like certain things about the way that I felt about, um, uh, just being in, being in Charlottesville and, and, and feeling like, like physically a little bit different. Like my, my difference really doesn't stand out all that much, you know, compared to um, people of color compared to like, uh, and just lots of people have a more standout difference than I do, but I stand out in, in certain parts of central Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, So what brought you to poetry? How did you get your, how did you get your teeth into poetry? Oh man. Um, well, I had a I had a good friend when I was in middle school who was real real smart, and she started writing poetry, and I wanted to impress her. <laughs> um, but then I quickly kind of I've always been like somebody who expressed myself verbally, and poetry initially to me seemed like a place where I could uh, put my secrets. Uh-huh. That was kind of what I thought it was. Was like, oh, it's this thing that sounds really good, but you also can't really understand it fully which means I can put my secrets in it and my understanding of that has evolved or my my definition of what poetry does has evolved a lot out of from that but that was the initial seed was like I'm a teenager and I need a place to put these feelings and I don't want anyone to know what they are but I do want to make something out of them interesting interesting that's really interesting like because I think a lot of people uh as readers approach poetry and find it enigmatic and Right. There's definitely that element there, even with, with the, my experience of poetry, that there's certain enigma, the kind of personal language, personal mythologies are very much entwined with it. And we're kind of that, again, that insider outsider kind of thing. And sometimes you connect with the poem and you're like part of that inside. Or sometimes you feel like looking into the glass cage, you know, looking at right. the glass case or whatever and seeing something, some strange enigma, you know? Right. Yeah. I never would have actually thought about that as being an insider outsider thing, but you're right. There is like a. There's something to, you know, creating a universe that feels really comfortable if, if you have felt excluded from other universes. Yeah. And then you get to kind of make your own world and invite people into it, um, which is different from how I feel about poetry now. But certainly like how I felt about it then was a little bit like this is my this is my turf and I know what it means and, and you're going to have to find out what it means. And now now I don't feel that way. But at the time, that was important to have that space. Yeah, good. So you just published your uh, first book, Things That Go. So why don't we talk a little bit about that and how the evolution of that book and yeah, and tell us a little bit about how this book evolved and uh, became what it is now. Yeah, uh, I started writing. I mean, the oldest poems in the book are from uh, when I was in grad school in Texas, um, but there are there are very few of them. I think the title is a the title is something that I came up with when I was in in grad school and, and almost, almost nothing of the rest of it has stayed the same. Um, something that I thought a lot about while I was writing it was that, or while I was finishing it, I guess in the stages of getting it ready to publish was that I, 
didn't set out to write a book so much as I was just, I've always just been engaged in the practice of writing poetry one poem at a time. Mm -hmm. And um, that sort of became a problem for the development of the book at a certain point because I realized that I wanted to write a book and that that's, you know, that's, I wanted to publish a book, which is another part, it's different from writing a book, but is a related process. And um, I realized that I had this pile of work that I didn't know, uh, I didn't understand fully what the connections were between all the pieces. And so for a long time was sort of struggling to figure out how everything fit together. And I wandered into this, um, I wandered into an understanding of my own work and my own interests sort of through the, the story of Lot's wife. And I started, when I started thinking about that and writing those pieces and thinking about their relationship to the to the other poems that I had written up to that point, I realized that I had some overarching concerns that had followed me throughout the years that I was writing a lot of these poems. And that helped me to, to kind of start to think about the book as a book and not just as, you know, poem to poem or like a pile of poems, which is how I was typically used to referring to them. I have this pile of poems. Yeah. Um, so talking about your, your, you were talking a little bit about how your vision changed. So talking about your current vision of poetry and how, that informed this book. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you were talking a little bit about how Lot's wife. We'll get to that in one mm-hmm. moment. But first, your, first, if you can get a snapshot of what your current uh, vision for poetry is, yeah. Oh gosh, well, I mean, I maybe to talk about how I see my own poems, or yeah. um, I, I the Lot's wife poems are are quite different from most of the other things I've written. Um, I think if I have any one thought about poetry and I have a lot of thoughts about poetry (laughs) but um I feel I feel like uh a poem is a is a moment that takes place in in time and you can't it's almost like it's almost improvisatory it isn't but I think that there's something about a poem that uh whatever you get from it in the language that it is delivered to you in can only be gotten from that language if it can be summarized in a certain way, then it uh, like a summary of a poem. This is a hard. Th- it's a hard thought for me to express. Right? I'm just having a hard time expressing it. Yeah, I think I understand what you're if, saying. Like, yeah, you understand what you're saying. Yeah, go ahead. But a summary yeah. of a poem is 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 never going to be as good as the poem itself. Yeah. Where like I think it's possible that you can summarize like a novel or a television show, um, although not in satisfactory terms. But there's something about the language in a poem. Um, that is the the interacting with it in a moment in time is the is the the primary thing of it it's the yeah. that's the most important thing and so like even if um even if you get to the end of a poem and you can't say like well that was about such and such um i think that t- to try to target its aboutness is sort of missing the experience of it in a certain way so yeah, i, I think that's i've heard that as the form is the message or the message is the form yeah or, i like yeah yeah good good and then you talked a little bit about language poetry. You started to inch in on that. Uh, can you give the listeners a little bit of uh, a sense of what language poetry is and what and how that differs from maybe other schools or something? Is there, it is school? Is school would you say or or approach to poetry or you it, know? Uh, I think it's formally a movement. Movement, okay. Um, but I'm and I'll just talk out of school because I you yeah. know what I know is. I like to think of myself as an undisciplined researcher in yeah. all in all field. Like I, you know, everything that I know is very much 
coming out of the things that I found interesting about it and remembered and then forgot a lot of other things about it. Um, But my understanding of um, the language movement or what was important to the language movement was the idea that language had been, this is, you know, during the Vietnam War era and language had been used um, for nefarious purposes by nefarious people. It had, the language coming out of the mouths of, say, like politicians or government officials or people who were um, using it harmfully, um, that it needed, the language needed to become more, um, more obvious and clearer to us again, that we need to take language out of the context that we're used to seeing it in because we've become a little too, too used to it. Um, and it's being used in ways that are not, um, that are not good for humans, um, and make it more, make it more opaque, make it more visible, um, and make it kind of the primary unit rather than the message, like you're saying, the form form is the message, um, drawing our attention back to language as opposed to the meaning of it, using it as a delivery system, because that sort of leads to things like propaganda, um, and, uh, that's sort of the extent of my understanding of it, but sort of making making language more of a more of an obvious unit to engage with as opposed to the things that language means oh, or yeah. seeing it as a you know a symbolic system of meaning so that we think about like the thought forms that behind the words you know the thoughts of the logos of the thoughts behind the words and we were talking a little bit about channeling about how you know we're kind of allowing these ideas to pass through us and that these uh these uh, as a, create, a part of the creative process, we're kind of um, permitting kind of these the whole history of human civilization in a sense to kind of pass through us and 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 not you know we th- we think in terms of creator that we're kind of creating words that it's originality you know a lot of people think in ter- those terms right but it seems like you're uh, taking it a little differently you're taking a different approach to it so oh yeah, yeah and you're referring to so we had talked earlier about the Martians yeah um, yeah I. Y- Totally un- unrelated or, or seemingly unrelated to language poetry um, and maybe what informs my process more than anything else is um, these ideas of poetic dictation, which I, I am familiar with those ideas from Jack Spicer's Vancouver lectures, but I think he, you know, he, he sources them to Yeats and, and other people. But um, yeah, the idea that as a poet... He uses a lot of different analogies. One of them is the radio set that, uh, you know, we it's our responsibility to to practice tuning our dial kind of um, that when we that when we sit down to write, we're we're tuning the dial. We're just sort of waiting for a signal. We're looking for a signal um, and we're becoming better instruments um, to receive the signal. And then the signal comes and that signal is our responsibility to listen to and then uh, get out of the way of, but the signal is he, another way that he refers to that signal is the Martians. Um, and, uh, he, he says, you know, the, the, the radio set is no more, is not the author of the song that comes through it. And neither are we, the poet necessarily the author of the thing that we, that, that comes out of us. We're collaborating with this larger, mysterious force that we that like our expertise is in learning how to receive it and how to how to allow it to come through us 
And I mean, it's as feely mealy as I get as a person to look at things that way, but it squares so much with my experience of having written something and not recognize it. And that's the best feeling for me as a writer is like, I wrote this thing and I don't, I don't recognize it. I don't own it. I'm like, I feel, I think it's good to feel like humble before the things that you make because you don't know when you're going to get to make something like that again. I just, I don't feel a lot of ego about it when it's out of, it's out of my hands um, when I've made something and that feels really good because then I can like it or I can not like it and it's not personal. It's just something that exists that came through me. Um, yeah, definitely. I definitely feel the same way. I think that uh, the thoughts and such, we never, oh, there's no original thought, you know, all of the thoughts are coming in response right. to our environment, in response right. to what everyone else is saying is civilizations of right. a- ancient civilizations and such. Yeah, yeah. And to take credit for that, it seems dangerous like to 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 sit there and and uh I guess uh feel feel powerful and feel like I you know I have total control over this thing that I've made and I made every every aspect of it and it comes from me that feels I imagine that would feel good in the moment but then in the moments where it doesn't work or in the moments where people respond to it in ways that you didn't intend or want then you're, you know, then it's all you. You're all alone, no matter what. Yeah. And so I like this idea better because, you know, it allows me to feel like I'm a collaborator and I'm on a team yeah. <laughs> with the Martians. Yeah. And, you know, writing, as you know, is like, you know, it can be kind of lonely. So it's nice to feel like, you know, I'm in it together with this other bigger thing than me. Yeah. Um, and and also, I just think that's it, it feels true. Like, it feels like thinking that is a way of honoring something that is bigger than I am. Yeah, um, so, and also about the history, we're talking about the, the history of the, and all the different stories that are out there. Right. You know, and speaking of which, returning to uh, Lot and his wife, um, why don't you tell us, just for, for a quick uh, summary of the storyline, and then maybe we'll get a moment to, and, and how it influenced you, and then we'll get to the poem in a little bit, yeah. Sure, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, growing up Jewish, Lot, the story of Lot's wife was not an... Uh, it was just, it was something I, I knew about, like, is familiar, it was as familiar to me as, like, Adam and Eve. It was just, yeah. like, one of the, it's one of the formative Bible stories that you hear. And I didn't realize until I started reading these poems to people um, that it wasn't a, that it wasn't a story that everyone knew. Um, and I'm, so I've been, like, puzzling through that, like, wondering, because I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a universal experience for Jewish people, but I, I am curious why it was emphasized in my uh, Jewish education, and I think that's interesting. But uh, the reason I first started thinking about the story of Lot's wife is because of um, the the like poetic fascination with Orpheus and Eurydice. Uh, like yeah. I just I'm there's so there are so many um, appearances of that particular story where like you know Orpheus goes to get Eurydice out of Hades and um, he turns behind him to look at her and she he, he loses her forever in the act of turning to look and see where she is. Um, and that is, and then, you know, and then because he's like the patron saint of lyric poetry, he is, that, that act of turning and just his whole trajectory is such a huge part of what people choose to focus on as poets. And I, whenever I would hear that story, I would think, oh yeah, that's like Lot's wife, only... Lot's wife is a woman. She doesn't have a name. 
she is associated with the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is just like incredibly charged and in you know has been used for as it's been used as a political tool. It's been used as like kind of fear mongering among the gay community, like against the gay community. It's been used like um, just in for lots of reasons. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah has been important, but this peripheral moment, which I guess I haven't glossed for anyone. So Lot and his wife um, and Lot, Lot and his family um, are told by some angels that the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed, but they have an opportunity to leave because they're good people is essentially what it comes down to. Yeah. So they, they flee the city and Lot's wife looks behind her and she turns into a pillar of salt. And what's interesting to me, too, is that in the text of Genesis, there's nothing that says like, and they said, don't look behind you. And then she looked behind her like it yeah. just it just says she looked and then she turned into salt. And so there wasn't even like a warning that suggests that she did something wrong. So then there's this huge mystery about like, why did she, why did that happen to her? Um, why is that moment kind of a, a buried moment in that story it's next to this huge like destructive um theme that we've we as a that culturally we've like carried on with us Sodom and Gomorrah is just like you know sodomites we like that that part of the story is something that has endured um in in I think really incredible and fascinating and damaging ways but her story hasn't Mm, so much yeah um and so that all was fascinating to me. And also, you know, again, she's a woman. She doesn't have a name. Um, and the, the the final piece of it is just like um, feeling more and more every day like I have the ability to watch destruction occur at just rates of incredible magnitude that I never would have imagined that I can like go on YouTube and if I want, I can watch people get murdered. I can yeah. watch, you know, like yeah. I can see all kinds of stuff on the internet that is just right at my fingertips. Sometimes I didn't even, sometimes I didn't choose to see it. Sometimes I scroll and there it is. And um, so completely without judgment, I just think that's something that changes us yeah. when, when we see it. And I'm curious about the ways in which we are being changed on a regular basis by watching this stuff occur in front of us. That's, massively violent, very destructive, um, that we have, that is impersonal in a way. It's like, because when violence occurs on a mass scale, it's, it's not something that we, it's not this intimate violence. It's like Lot, Lot's wife watching the destruction of a whole city. Yeah. Um, there's something about that that I think is very interesting and troubling, and I don't have any prescriptions about how to deal with it, other than that I think we should be thinking about the fact that we change as people when we look at that stuff. Yeah, it seems like, actually, I remember now that you see about looking back and looking and seeing as being a, an act of, uh, of uh, possible, like, uh, possible, you know, co- having consequences and mm-hmm, such. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a storyline in, in, in Hindu mythology as well about this uh, young man who um, goes to a temple, goes to goes to a temple and he wants to, he wants to show. He wants to inspire his town to like a, a remote temple. He wants to inspire his town about Krishna and his faith in Krishna. Mm-hmm. And the Krishna comes to life. The statue comes to life, and he's like, "Come with me to the town." But the requirement is that as he's walking towards the town, he can't turn around to look at Krishna to make sure that he's following him. He has to have faith 
that Krishna's following him. Uh-huh. And halfway through the town, he, he has, he's driving him nuts. He has to turn back, and then Krishna becomes a statue. Oh, my know? gosh. Yeah, So right. it's a very similar kind of thing, although I guess it has different import. I don't know. But uh, the act of seeing, though, mm-hmm. turning back, looking back, and seeing whether or not he's following him, mm-hmm. uh, turns him back to a statue, and the town sees that. How could he have moved the statue that far? He must have. They believe him because... Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's exactly, that's fast. Thank you for telling me about that because yeah. I, in my ignorance, don't know that story. Yeah. And that no is story. really interesting. And it, it also reminds me of, you know, in, in Jewish liturgy, like, you know, in any, in any service, Saturday morning or whenever it is, the, the, the Shema, the, the, the big prayer, it's like the big one um, where, you know, the, the text of it is, uh, hero Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's like the big, the, the, the whole idea of the one, the one God. Um, and when you say it, you cover your eyes because the idea is that there's, there's a presence in the room that you, that you're not supposed to look at. I think that's what I, that's what I remember of, of that being the significance is that you're, you, you don't look at the face of God Mm. and the face of God is present in that moment. So you, everybody covers their eyes when they say that prayer. And there, it's just fascinating to track this like, don't look at it thing. Yeah, going through religion and going through um, like pop culture, probably even like there. I was reading, I read a book about um, a, a book called "Forgetting Lot's Wife" by Martin Harris that like has a lot of ideas about her uh, significance in in pop culture and in in just in general in our culture. And he points to things like there are moments in noir where it's just like, don't look back, baby. Yeah. Like, just like things like yeah. that, that, that the significance kind of rolls on in different ways. So while we get to one of the poems, uh, I think we're reading the poem with the inspiration from a painting, speaking of which. Oh, sure. So uh, you tell us a little bit about the painting, and uh, before you read the poem, just tell us a little bit about the painting and, and how this painting informed uh, the poem. Sure, and this is an unusual one. It's the only... there. So this book has, uh, for context, it has... Uh, Poems called Lot's Wife in it, and they all sort of they have a they move in a trajectory towards a monologue that she gives later on in the book. But this is the only one that is like kind of inspired by an outside, um, an outside thing, and that's this painting by Camille Corot um, called The Burning of Sodom. And I, you know, I I just was when I started really thinking in earnest about a lot of these ideas, I wanted to be a part of a conversation that has been taking place for many years about Lot's wife because she does appear in, you know, art and in poems and, and other places. And so I was taken in particular by this painting because it is, um, it's, it's an oil painting and it's, it's, she is an odd, odd figure in it. She's sort of, she's sort of right of center. She looks like a smudge. Like she looks like this very shapeless, formless. You can't tell it's a woman. You can't tell it's. You can almost barely tell it's a person, um, but it's this shadowy uh, figure. And then the primary action in the painting is uh, Lot and his daughters fleeing, and they look like people, and you can see them. But you know she's off, and and it's sort of an uncentered. If I remember correctly, it's kind of an uncentered painting. It's like the action is taking place on the right and left of where your eye you know, hits the center of the painting. Um, so it just sort of, it struck me that even in this painting that, 
you know, is not called Lot's wife. It's called the burning, burning of Sodom. But even in this painting, she's not the most important or the most, uh, she, she's, she's obscured even in this thing that's about the moment that ha- this yeah. stuff happened to her. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, but yeah, so I shall, I'll, I can just yeah, read, yeah, it? read it. Yeah. Sure. Um, Lot's wife, Camille Corot, the burning of Sodom, 1843 oil on canvas. He paints her tenderness as a black shroud unsexed in the right-hand corner of the painting, pregnant with shadow, under the hand of a red event. To have lost it all to a small distance, moving in the neck, blooming from the middle of the body like a fish, rising into the dream of the water hunt. For her daughters, what's left of a city turns to ice before turning back to the river, a new city forming around the shoots of an old way of seeing. To introduce their eyes to the juniper growing into the lightning in the field, they bear each other away on the lit plain. As the painter shepherds weather around her dark shoulders, she exists only as oil ready to burn. If ever he found this painted city, its actual canvas, in flames. She is the one, he admitted, he would turn back himself to save. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. And uh, you want a little bit, I guess we'll do one more um, from a, a give a sense, give an overall sense of the manuscript. Sure. Uh, to give like maybe one of the personal poems, yeah. So one of the other poems too. So, the, so the, there's like four or five of the lots, wife poems, but they kind of give a structure to the other poem. So, uh, do you think that um, when you write like poems that are, how does it inform? How does Lot's wife's story I think inform your more personal poetry, or uh, how, in what way do you want the reader to look at the other poems in, in that light? Or is that mm-hmm. how, how do you think that gives a slant to the light, if you, so to speak? Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. nice way to put it. Yeah, um, I that's a great question. And the Lot's wife poems did come quite late in the process of writing. Yeah. The book. So um, the the other poems that surround it, I think, um, I've I've realized kind of that there's a lot that there some of the some of the other movements in this book. Lot's wife, I I see as kind of a, a vertical movement. She's like a still figure. She's standing like the poems that the poems that are about her are these long columns, um, and she is a long column. And a lot of the other things that I'm interested in that make up the rest of the manuscript are these sort of like um, things that go. It's like a constant motion forward and a, and a, and a sort of uh, the, the movement of, of grief, of looking back, um, mm, yeah. and also this, this sort of pushing forward endlessly into American progress. So there's like a lot of stuff um, that I'm interested in, in small ways, talking about the personal is political, yeah. um, that are, you know, things, things in things in my life or things that I like to look at, like trains, um, trains, buildings, the, like the, the rapid construction of, of cities, um, those kinds of things that I just find interesting as, as human behavior, um, and like to look and think about those things from my own, um, tiny perspective. So, uh, really I think the way Lot's wife ties into most of that stuff is that I primarily see myself as a, as a looker. Like I, I sit here, 
with my eyes and my brain and I look at stuff and I I think that I am fundamentally changed by what I see and I think that calling attention to that is something that it that has value to other people because I think we all are probably benefited in some way by seeing ourselves as people who see stuff and yeah. by thinking about the way that what we see changes us and the 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 way that we um the way that we choose what to look at and the way that sometimes we don't choose what we look at but what we see is you know becomes a part of of our makeup mm-hmm. and so that i mean that's a very vague um idea that i think kind of connects a lot of these poems but they they are i think all engaged in some way in the act of looking and thinking about looking and thinking about thinking about looking you know yeah. um there was a John Berger, Berger, I think, was the name of the author of Ways of Seeing. Uh, I forget now. There was a book that I read yeah. early on in college, Ways of Seeing, which talked about kind of the act of seeing and the act of like looking and, mm-hmm. and how seeing and being seen and, and all these different books about that and about how, um, you know, there's no one way of looking. There's there's many different ways of looking, even at the same quote-unquote object. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about an object. You know, there's many different ways of looking at, perceiving it, of understanding it, all these kinds of things. So it seems like... Uh, in modern society, we we kind of tend to simplify that as thinking about you know things existing as objective reality as and, and there's only one way to look at it, but right. there's many different ways. Yeah, right. And it also I feel like there's also there's an exchange of energy in a certain sense. Like the the there are there are so many ways of looking at something and we're very used to thinking of and talking about the idea that you know what's observed changes by by yeah. when it is observed it changes position or it changes behavior but i think it also i think that there's a there's a mutual um there's an exchange of energy where we change when we observe something perhaps mm. or like what we're observing has an effect on us the observer also which is, I mean, and, and that's all, you know, it's all conjecture, who knows. Yeah. But, but it feels to me like, you know, it, uh, time changes you if looking at something doesn't. And looking at something is a thing that occurs in time. So you're going to, you look at something and you're different after you've seen it. Yeah. Um, and especially when it comes to, you know, seeing, be, bearing witness to sad things, bearing witness to violent things, you know, um, even if what you don't think you're doing is bearing witness, and even if you're you're participating, but you're also watching, um, I just am fascinated by that. The second half of that, the not just how to see something, but what 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 you're seeing does to you in in return, kind of. Yeah. So I would get one more poem that give people a sense of the of the total manuscript, so then they don't think, you know, they get a better sense of the whole thing. Sure. Yeah. So I'll I'll just read the first. So the other thing that I haven't really mentioned is that there's a lot of stuff in here about the American Southwest that yeah. um, that I'm just sort of fascinated by, and I feel like it's a it's a setting. I could easily see Lot's wife sitting down in the American Southwest, and you know, in her alternate timeline, she's like living in a house out there, yeah, <laughs> and like she can move around and stuff. <laughs> um, so this is a this is a poem called Home on the Range. There are times where no one else exists. They are more like places. I love the great American West, where the moon hunts us for a living. It draws closer and then away from me. Me, where I cannot be stopped. Under the moon's shadow stalk, 
where time encounters itself on the mesa and is rubbed sandpapery by its own imitable processes. I am, with an increasing frequency, becoming. I'm out thinking of wind in a low presence of wind, bending to stir the scrub and sage that attends the heart's climb from ridge to ridge. Of feelings, of course. The past must be a jerk. All those bonfires, dead dogs, a herd of horizons with me at its back. I nip and I nip. And yet, wherever I go, I find myself on my knees before a feeling so big it's already been annexed by the military. Being in love is like almost knowing what is about to happen before you are ripped apart by the sun and its belly. Like finally finding inside a haystack, there's a more beautiful haystack. From what did love all of a sudden rear up? Or the knife in my hand, where having one means I believe in my life, in the language of what it might become. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. I really like the imagery of the finding another beautiful haystack. <laughs> within, the, within that haystack, it's like finding the, the, um, the way in which infinity continues and, and finding more and more things that you are hidden or obscured and, yeah. and these kinds of things. Yeah, it's really nice. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So why don't we talk a little bit about the personal political? I understand you were doing or you, you are doing a uh, class for Brooklyn Poets. You were teaching a class for Brooklyn Poets entitled The Personal is Political. Is that correct? Or, yeah? That is correct. Oh, okay, yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of the impetus behind doing that class and, and a little bit about what your, your understanding of that phrase, phraseology is, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I think it's exciting that that's language that you're using in this show, too. Yeah. Um, I was introduced to that idea. Um, I used to, for a long time, I worked at a um, at an organization called the Young Writers Workshop, which is a summer camp for uh, young teenage creative writers. And um, we would do uh, electives with the students. And um, one of my co-counselors at the time um, introduced me, started doing consciousness raising groups with students. And uh, that's where I first learned about this the, the personal is political being the title of this essay by Carol Hainish, um, 1969 essay where she, um, or I think it might've even been a talk, um, but uh, where she outlines this idea that um, when we relegate the, the personal experiences and struggles of people um, to like this idea of smallness or domesticity and like, you know, we don't want to talk about our personal problems. Those are our personal problems, not political problems. Um, we're really sort of ignoring some of the most important aspects of our, our uh, makeup as a society. And, and that that's to put it in it, to frame it in positive terms, the personal experiences that we have as individuals make up politics. Um, yeah. And so they're sort of the beginning there, that's sort of what you have to start out with in order to affect political changes to first express and understand what our political situation is through listening to and expressing your personal experience and the personal experience of others. So consciousness raising groups were this opportunity for women specifically um, to come together and just speak from their personal experience. And when they're not speaking, they're listening um, and try to understand where what the problems are um, and how, you know, what people's personal experience is made up of so that we can understand 
where we need to affect change and how we might affect that change. Um, and so I'm really compelled by that idea in poetry. I think that, um, I think that the, the class that I'm teaching, the idea is that we're, we're all looking for ways to address what we think of as political situations um, or political concerns but it's good for us as poets, at least in the context of this class, it's not like a prescription, but in the context of this class, what we're trying to do is to consider um, the ways in which we might start um, we might start from personal experience and sensory detail if we if what we want to do is address politics because yeah. um, it's it's easier to or it it may be easier at least in this in the context of poetry to start with those things. And um, rather than thinking like, I'm going to write a poem about voting rights today, <laughs> like, um, you know, so we're, we're sort of looking at our lives uh, deeply and attentively and trying to figure out what there might be of um, of some significance and how what are the tools that we can use to to invite other people into our experience and help them um, and uh, like help ourselves express our personal experience in effective ways. Yeah, it seems like. Um... What we're trying to do is find, speaking of the other pillar of the show, the truth to power aspect, mm-hmm. you know, we're finding our personal truth and really connecting with that so that then that can allow us to empower ourselves in our communities. And, and what you think about that and what you think about kind of like, um, you know, even knowing what the truth is sometimes can be a little obscured, as you're saying. It seems right. like, you know, just, uh, you know, we're kind of always blinded by all these ideologies and these abstractions and. And these talking points, and uh-huh. we're not getting a chance to really connect with the sensory aspects of our own experience. Even it's that even that can sometimes can be hidden from us. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and and even just I think what listening does in this context when you're when you're in a position where your job is to just listen to other people discuss their personal experience, it it can be really I think it can be really like healthy and healing for people to to get used to the idea of there being multiple truths, mm. um, not multiple facts. Yeah, <laughs> but exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. but in in instances of you know where 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 truth is the truth of your experience, you know where someone is if someone is saying like we live in a post racial world and then somebody else says like I experienced racism today, yeah, like. Then you need to you you need to adjust your sense of what your you know what you believe to be true about the world was just was just challenged and it was challenged in a very specific way and you need to ask yourself like what um, you need I, I think it's it's good for all of us to to consider um, that we need to listen to people individually when they speak that that is what makes up the truth of our politics not not these larger ideas necessarily about who we say we are but these individual experiences that people have that that really do make up who we are. Yeah, I think our individual experiences are really informed by those large experiences, larger narratives and larger structures because, you know, we can't experience anything without some kind of guide. And a lot of times, you know, it's so much more complicated than just, like, things happen and then we experience them. But, I mean, you know, obviously it's very right. organic. But um, they were talking about, you know, one of the questions we asked before was about what's wrong or misguided about society? And you had an interesting answer. I want to give you a shot at kind of just talking a little bit about kind of what you think is kind of where you think we're going wrong or what's a way to a pathway perhaps that we can kind of correct that or anything you have, any thoughts on that? Or you're talking a little bit about, um, you know, how these structures of democracy and capitalism, (laughs) you know, and these are kind of just our own opinions, you know, but 
our experience with them. Yeah. Yeah, I I did write uh, the the backstory of this is I wrote. I wrote you like six pages of a rant. I'm like, I don't understand any of these things, but here's how I feel. Yeah. I, I do think I do think when I think about, because I, I want to be constructive, and I like that question, and it's a yeah. brave question, and it's a complicated question. Yeah. Um, my, my feeling almost always whenever, any, whenever I think about like what, what can I, what's like a constructive uh, way to, to solve any problem, I think we all need to get better at listening. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's funny to say that on the radio where I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I have been instructed to hold forth, you know? Um, but I, I do think that, uh, I think that we have, we are, we are being actively conditioned by forces that don't have our best interests at heart yeah. to speak a lot and to, to get a lot of positive reinforcement almost to an, like an addictive degree, um, for, for speaking, you know, we get likes for output. We yeah. just output, output, output all the time. And uh, that, ben like, you know, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I'm on all those things, and I'm egregious. Like, I use them all the time. But I think that those those things are conditioning us. They're, they're, they're not, we're like this. We are like that, I think. We're, we're, we're people who like attention. And um, those those entities are um they're i think they're they're encouraging us to indulge in some pretty like like bummer qualities of our nature and uh they're dis we have less and less of an incentive to shut up and we have less and less of an incentive to step back and um we instead what we have is this uh this impetus to yell at each other for not for not stepping back yeah. And there's just a lot of that is like a lot of people saying like, you know, what you really should be doing is not talking. You know, what you really should be doing is not talking. But yeah. I think a lot of people should not be talking and we should all be listening. Um, and, you know, I've I I get a great deal out of um, asking questions and listening to people and and not just listening, but trying to hear them and and starting every um starting every interaction by thinking this is a person I want to believe. Um, yeah. Like I want to believe and trust this person. That's like where I set start at the beginning of any interaction, because I think that, and, and like also what, what, what about this person's perspective is unique that I can learn and somehow incorporate into my understanding of what the world is. Um, I feel like that's sort of where empathy comes from is, is, the imaginative leaps that you can make to put yourself in another person's environment and yeah, to definitely, see definitely. like what that person has of value. Cause everybody does. It sounds very Sesame street, but I just feel <sighs> like every single person has something really interesting to share with you. Yeah. Um, and that I think, I don't know. We are, it, I would love to see more incentives for us to do that because we clearly need incentives we've been incentivized to do the other thing for a long time now by the internet yeah. and other and lot before the internet too but um it'd be nice if we could listen more yeah i think that definitely we have a, a system where we're echoing or we're reflecting we're pushing back we're always without thinking without really processing we're kind of you know we're hearing things and we're just throwing it back we're not like Really processing and listening, as you're saying, and, and understanding where that communication is happening, mm -hmm. interpersonal communication. That instead we're just repeating and repeating and, mm -hmm. and not and not getting to that. But I do want to change a little bit to uh, 
your music. Mm-hmm. So I understand you're in a band. And tell us a little bit about kind of the evolution of the band and, and how you got into that and, and all this kind of thing. We'll, at the end, we'll play a song. As you start to wind down, we'll play songs from your band. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. And it's the first time that that will be on a radio situation or podcast situation. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I am. It's a it's a duo uh, with my buddy Paul Eric Lip, who uh, plays under the name Evening Man, and he's got two records out on his own that are incredible. Um, and uh, Paul and I have been friends for a number of years, and he's a he's an exceptional musician, a really wonderful guitarist, and a really wonderful um, producer um, of all kinds of music, but um, in particular, electronic music is is something that he's really spectacular at. And uh, we've talked about making music together for a long time, and things just sort of lined up about six months ago where we both um, sort of like transitioned out of different jobs that we were working and decided that we were going to try to start playing music together. So he lives in Washington, D.C., um, so it's a, it's a long-distance effort, um, but we are now writing songs together and for me writing music is is I'm something that I'm new at um for Paul it's something that he's been doing for a very long time so I'm learning a lot um every day from doing this um but yeah it's been it's been really fun and it's a different way of exercising a creative um creative energy um it's very very different from writing poems for me um I think it's uh yeah, it's just more embodied. It's it's more um, it's 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 two thousand percent more collaborative than my poetry process. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I'm I'm really enjoying that part of it because, as I said before, like you know, it's always nice to find ways to make art making feel less lonely. Um, and I I this is not at all a lonely process. So that's I really enjoy music for that. Good, good. Thank you so much. So thank you. This has been the Truth to Power Show. I'm ready for Brooklyn. Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. Please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax-deductible to the full extent of law. Again, it's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, also, I just want to announce, as I've been announcing in the last past couple of shows, um, Ready for Brooklyn is proud to show that they'll be launching an after-school program for local teenagers in 2019 to learn media literacy through media making using a hands-on approach guided by local professionals. If you'd be interested in participating or donating uh, to this program, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash afterschool. And remember that all donations are tax-deductible. And also, if you're listening on uh, the computer... Free yourself off by going to readyforbrooklyn.org slash iPhone or slash Android. And you can listen to it on your mobile app. Uh, and also you can find out about our newsletters through readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Okay, so we'll be listening to the song um, I've Been Dreaming. Um, the name of the band is um, was it Old School? The Old School? The Old, the old Year. School? The Old Year. The Old Year. Uh, the old year, so please go check them out on iTunes and such. And we'll listen. To I've been dreaming. It just came out this year. So any other last plugs? Uh, do you want to send someone somewhere? Send any our listening audience anywhere? Or your oh. website or something? Uh, you can follow. Oh. You can follow me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, or my website. It's just my name dot com. So laura eve angle dot com. Um, and thank 
Thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. Thank you. Hey, this is Matt Attack, host of the Road 